welcome to the Redeemer 20 Sermon Podcast, where our goal is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. My name is Luke Dirks, and I'm your host, and I'm also privileged to lead the 20s ministry at Redeemer Church in beautiful Rockford, Illinois. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at our Thursday night gathering at 7 p.m. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope you also join us at a future Thursday. especially in the Christmas season, and just reflecting on the Lord Jesus, right? <laughs> Nothing greater than that. Um, for those of you guys that are new here, first of all, we're really glad that you're here. Really, really glad that you guys are here. It's just such a, just such a privilege and pleasure to really just think about the impact that the 20s ministries has besides, you know, the Rockford area. Um, it's just such a blessing. And um, that being said, we are in the book of John. Like I said, for those of you guys that are new here, we're, we're going through the book of John, and we're in John chapter 14, which is part of this, what's known as the upper room discourse, the upper room discourse. And so we're going to be in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14, and I'm entitling this message, uh, The Way, The Truth, and Life. So if you guys are getting anything from this message, get that, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that's kind of like the main overarching point, if you will, that I want you guys to really have in the back of your brains as we're going through this text is that eternal comfort and salvation, they are only found in Christ alone. Eternal comfort and salvation are only found in Christ alone. And I wanted to start by asking you guys something. Have you ever been lost before? Like genuinely lost? Maybe, maybe even internally. How'd that make you feel? How'd you feel in those moments of being lost? I remember when I was a kid feeling this way in some sort of small measure, my my older sister and I, we would do this thing when we'd go to the department store, whether it be like Target or whatever it is with my parents, where we would try to basically play hide and seek with them, but it's like, like they knew what we were doing. We weren't, we weren't fooling them. Like we weren't, we weren't hiding or anything like that, but you know, we'd hide between the clothes racks and, and things like that. But once again, the, my parents, they always knew what we were doing. Nobody, nobody was fooling them. They knew our location, but we'd pretend like we were actually hiding from their view. Um, but I remember there was this one time, vividly, because it was just a traumatic experience. <laughs> one time we were so invested that my sister and I actually started hiding from each other. And we, lo- and we forgot that we were playing this game with our parents, as we put it. We were so invested from hiding from each other and got so focused that we actually lost track of where our mom was in the store. And it was a pretty large department store. It wasn't a Target. It was, it was some clothes store. Um, but it was huge. And it had like, I think it was a three-story department store, like it was massive. Um, and we lost track of our mom, and we couldn't see her, right? And so as a result, you know, I'm seven at the time. My sister, she's three years old, so she's ten, and we just, we started freaking out. <laughs> started freaking out. And then me being the younger brother, I mean, my sister starts freaking out, and then when she's freaking out, I'm like, wait a second. Oh, there's actually something wrong here. Um, and so because of that, the whole thing was just a mess, right? But my mom actually, like, she knew we played this game, and my mom told us that, um, if there was ever a chance that we couldn't find her or, or my dad, just go to the front desk of the department store and they'll, you know, they'll ring her up and um, she'll come and get us. The problem was is that we were so lost and lost our bearings, we didn't even know where the front desk was. Because this was like a three-story department store. So, I mean, we're just, we're flipping out. And after basically running around the store for some time, we eventually found the front. And they called my mom. And... What's interesting is like, they showed us the way to not feel lost, which was evidenced by my mom returning to us. 
And interestingly enough, she actually knew, once again, that where we were playing the whole time, which was usually like what we trusted instinctively as we were playing, um, but <laughs> when we were initially playing and got so focused on one another, she knew where we were the whole time, and then when we thought we couldn't see her and got lost, then we ran off, and then she was like, okay, well, where are they? You know, so it was just a whole mess. Um, but what's interesting is that in that moment, we felt lost, fearful, troubled, and didn't know the way, and, and we didn't know where our mom, the source of our peace was in that moment. And I think this theme, if you will, kind of encapsulates the passage that we're in tonight where we see Jesus recognizing as the good shepherd that he is, recognizing that the disciples feel lost and they feel troubled like a sheep without a shepherd. And, and, but Jesus, once again, as the good shepherd, he points them outside of themselves and reminds them that he's preparing a place for them and that the way to go to where he is, they must recognize that he is the only way to get there. That he alone is the way uh, for their peace. He is the, alone the truth for the trouble, the life for their lostness. And so as we go through this test, ask yourself tonight, are you lost? Do you need to know for the first time maybe, or, you know, because we as Christians need to be reminded as well of the way who is actually a person, Jesus himself. And so that brings us to our, our first point that Jesus is the only way to peace and salvation. And we get that from verses one through six. And so just to expand on this a little bit, as we look at the text here, let's notice something right off the bat in verse one. Jesus, as we touched on, is he's seeking to encourage his disciples by exhorting them to do what? To, have, to not have troubled hearts. And he tells, them, he tells them to have faith not only in the Father, but also in the Son, with whom he shares deity and purpose. But how does he encourage them? Look with me at verse 2. He says, the Father's house has many rooms. And I think that's interesting there, because he says, see if you can catch the emphasis. The Father's house has many rooms, which most likely is pointing to the vastness of the scope of salvation, but also many rooms, which is pointing to the fact that we have been adopted into God's family. Do you catch that? And, and Jesus, he's talking about he's going to prepare a place for the disciples, which this place being spoken of is most likely the new heavens and the new earth that we're going to get into. And this then is, is dovetailed by verse 3, where Jesus says that he will return for his people, his spiritual brothers and sisters. But once again, we see, if you've been with us for any length of time, you see that there is this recurring theme from the disciples where Jesus, he, he expects them to know the way this reality, but they miss it. Again, they misunderstand what Jesus is saying. You see this theme with his disciples. You see it with the Jews. Jesus is the most misunderstood human that's ever existed. Jesus graciously, though, and patiently points them out to what they are missing. That the way that Jesus is talking about, the way is for, it's for sure a path, but it's actually more than that. It's a person. Jesus says in John chapter 10 that he is the door right? And he is the door to find green pasture. And if you want to enter in by that green pasture, you have to enter in by him and him alone. And it's important for us to consider, though, that the disciples' responses in this moment, they, they reveal the context of how Jesus' statements would have mattered to them personally. Remember, in this context, in John 13 through 16, that's what's known as the upper room discourse, where Jesus is giving his last words of teaching an encouragement to his disciples before he's about to be slaughtered. Slaughtered. And which is why the disciples are feeling troubled. 
They know that he's leaving them. They know that this teacher whom they have, they have loved and they've eaten with and they've slept with and they've cried with and they've laughed with is going to be leaving them. And then they don't know what to do. And, and what's interesting is Jesus in, the moment of the, in this moment, in a very personal way, wishes to encourage them. But how? By explaining that though he will be betrayed, which will lead to his death, he's not going to abandon them at the end of the day. But rather, he is preparing a place for them so they can join him in that place. Jesus, he explained to them actually on other occasions as well in John's gospel that he, he is going to be going away and returning from where he came, where John says in John chapter 1, verse 18, that he came from the Father's side, that he came down in John chapter 3, verse three, uh, 13, and that he will be ascending to the Father once again in John 6, verse 62. So this isn't news per se, but Jesus understands that in this particular moment, they need to be reminded of those truths. And Thomas's reply, as we see in verse 5, and Thomas's reply reiterates once again this theme of the disciples' misunderstanding. But John actually points us to in chapter 12, verse 16. He says this, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So once again, after Jesus' work is completed, the disciples have a more full understanding. And Jesus' reply shows the context of what he's referring to. The way of salvation is through him as he goes to the cross to secure it. And this theme is especially seen, and I just love the parallels here with John 17. This theme is especially seen in John 17 where he acknowledges in his prayer to the Father that his hour has come to go to the cross and that through Jesus' glorified state following the cross, he will bring his disciples to himself. Spiritually uniting them in salvation, but then also actually physically raising them from the dead in the last day of resurrection. And reuniting with them in the new heavens and the new earth. Think about, like, try to put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a second. Think about what a comfort this would have been. You know, maybe their heart's beating out of their chest, they're, they're, they're anxious and they're afraid, and yet Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not going to abandon you, I'm actually preparing a place for you, and I will come back for you. I will come back for you. The disciples, they know that trial is coming, right? They know that, that darkness is coming, that suffering is only going to get worse after, after Jesus physically leaves, but they know that he is the way, and through him, through the way, they have hope, right? But this begs another point of contention, though, because when you're dealing with this passage, it can be easy to look at Jesus saying that he is the way, the truth, and life, and just peg in on that from, you know, the exclusivity of salvation, which we're going to get to. But remember, in context, Jesus is saying this to encourage them, that he is the way. And so, because they've been encouraged, knowing that since they have put their faith in him, they will go to the place that he's prepared to them. But once again, we still have to deal with that other thing. That other thing is the fact that Jesus is making a claim of exclusivity, and what he's saying is that, as he says in verse 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one. Salvation is found in him and nowhere else. He is the way. And, and in the original text, it's connoting this idea of a previously traveled path, that he is the truth. 
That he is, he is the objective reality regardless of how you feel about it. Regardless of how you feel about it, Jesus is the truth, full stop. And he is the life pointing to resurrection and, and peace and rest. And all these things are only found in Christ alone. And this is, this is a key point of contention that we have to understand, right? Because it doesn't take very long to notice that the world has a very real problem, right? The world has a problem. Namely, sinful, wrongful rebellion against a holy God. What you guys see around you going on in the world is merely a fruit of the sinful rebellion that rests deeply in the heart of man. And so the question is, is how can what is wrong be made right? And that, that is the deepest question that any man can answer, any woman can answer, is how can I be right with my maker? How can what is wrong be made right? I love what Pastor Vodi Bauckham once, he made a gospel tract about life's biggest questions. And this very question was posed, and he posits that, he posits that as an answer for those who deny the reality of sin, what do they do? How do they approach this? They say our issue as humans is either we are insufficiently educated or insufficiently governed. And personally, I love his answer about what a common cultural response would be about the solution, right? So if we're insufficiently educated, that's our problem. Or we're insufficiently governed, that's our problem. What's the solution? Well, the solution needs to be more education and more government. In other words, teach people more stuff and give them more rules. That'll fix us. A lot of good that's done us, right? And, you know, if you throw in that someone's religious in there somewhere, then they're going to say, oh, but, but everyone's going to be saved in the end. It's universalism, and, and people aren't actually worthy of eternal punishment. There, there is no justice at the end of this. But let's just set the record straight in accordance with the Bible. The Bible. The problem is that God is holy, and we've disobeyed willingly. We've disobeyed his law. And our disobedience merits eternal justice and wrath. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages, what is earned from sin, is death. And the author of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. That's why Jesus had to die. And so what is the solution then? What is it? Jesus had to die to pay the penalty for the sins of his people and all who repent and believe in him and his sacrifice, they will be saved from that judgment. But then that begs another question. Is this only available through Jesus? The Bible would say absolutely and unequivocally yes. No questions asked. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, the apostles state concerning Christ that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And this, once again, begs another question to readers everywhere. Who is Jesus? Is he God? Is he just some mere enlightened man? Or to quote Jesus himself to his own disciples in Matthew 15, 16, who do you say that I am? First, let's just, let's just take a, you know, a flyby look at what man-made religion, and yes, man-made religion, would say Jesus is. For example, Orthodox Jews, the Jews of Jesus' day, that would be carried over in today, they say that, you know, Jesus, he was Mary's son, and he was a teacher, he was a rabbi, and he had many disciples and followers and was respected and performed miracles, and he claimed to be the Messiah, 
and he was crucified on the cross. And they also acknowledge that his followers report that Jesus rose from the dead. That's how they would view it. Muslims, they believe that Jesus, he was born of a virgin and he's to be revered and respected. And he was a prophet and a wise teacher who worked miracles, ascended to heaven, and will someday come again. Mormons, they believe that Jesus, he came from God. And essentially, he, he performed everything as recorded in the Bible. But at the end of the day, he's, he's a spirit brother of Satan and an offspring of Heavenly Father. And, and Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe that Jesus is the Father's firstborn son. But he's inferior to God and was actually created by him. And Hindus, they believe that Jesus, he was a holy man and a wise teacher and kind of this, this demigod figure, but not uniquely the creator of all things. Buddhists, they believe that Jesus was an enlightened man and a wise teacher. And, you know, this is kind of, it's hard to define, you know, the new age type stuff. New age practitioners, there's a broad definition, but largely they maintain that Jesus was a wise and moral sage. It's basically who he was. He was just a really smart, nice guy. But what do we notice across all of those? Jesus is not recognized or acknowledged as the uniquely one-of-a-kind creator of the universe who took on flesh. This was, don't let anyone tell you different, this was Jesus' claim, though. It was. And you have to reconcile that. What will you do with Jesus at the end of the day? And then also ask yourself, what will Jesus do with you in, in response? And this is to the unbeliever. His identification with the Father, as we've seen, coupled with his claims of deity elsewhere, they are imperative to salvation, friends. They are. They are. As we've talked about many times, the declaration of Scripture is a shout from mountaintops, or if you're Jonah in the belly of a whale, that salvation belongs to the Lord, Jonah 2.9. And as we touched on in John 10 with Jesus' I am the door statement, for him to make claims of salvation being found in him alone and him to say that he gives it, that implies that he actually owns salvation. That salvation is something that he can give. And for him to own salvation, guys, is for him to be God, plain and simple. Plain and simple. Jesus is the way the truth, the life, and salvation is found in no one apart from him. And so there's two main things evident here for our sake, you know, just to bring it back down to our level. There's two main themes here. First, the peace of God is given to his people in times of trouble. The peace of God is given to his people in times of trouble. Think about Jesus comforting his disciples. And number two, kind of picking back what we just talked about, the core message about the person work of Jesus Christ is that true peace and salvation is exclusively found in him and those, and those who believe in him. And the first lens, let me ask you, what gets you through hard times? Maybe you're in the middle of one right now. What is the vision beyond your present circumstance that allows you to push through and get up every morning out of bed? I've given this illustration, it seems like a lot the last couple of weeks, just in conversations, but there's this really, really great scene in the third movie of The Lord of the Rings that's reflected in the books where 
Um, if you've seen the movie, there's this part where the white city, Minas Tirith, is being ransacked and, and pillaged, and the armies of Mordor are coming up against it. The armies of Mordor are just representing evil and darkness, and they're coming up against Minas Tirith, and the first few levels of the city have already been, you know, just, just ransacked and destroyed, women and children slaughtered, and these monsters are coming up to the, near the top final level. And the camera pans back, and there's these trolls and all these gross things just trying to beat their way into the city. And then the camera pans back even more, and you see Gandalf, the white wizard, and he's there with Pippin, one of the hobbits. And then Pippin, you know, like any rational individual, is like, this is not good. And he says, <laughs> and he says I didn't think it would end like this. You know, and there's kind of a sobering tone for a split second. And then Gandalf has this curious look on his face where he says, and like this, no. Death is just part of the journey. He says, you know, when you die, you see this sea of silver glass. He's like, and then you see it. And he just lets it hang there for a second. And then Pippin's like, see what? See what, Gandalf? Like, he's just like, don't leave me on this cliffhanger. Um, and then Gandalf, he continues, and he has like this weird smirk on the side of his face. And he says, white shores. And beyond that, a far green country. And he just lets it hang there for a second. There's this epic soundtrack in the back. <laughs> and Pippin slowly, you know, he's just locked in on Gandalf, and he slowly smiles, and he's like, that doesn't sound so bad. And Gandalf's like, no, it doesn't. And just to nerd out for a little bit, if you know anything about Tolkien's mythology, you know that Gandalf is kind of this, you know, it's called Einar, angelic-type being that took on flesh at some point. And so him saying that is significant because he's actually physically laid his eyes on those white shores. He knows what he's talking about. And friends, I think this is important to understand because, brothers and sisters, understand that the hope that comes from knowing that Christ prepares a place for you in the beautiful new heavens and new earth, where, as Revelation 21 says, God will physically dwell with us, and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more, neither there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Friends, that's what gets you through hard times. You need something rock solid and tangible to remind yourself of when trials, fears, doubts, temptations, and brokenness come upon you right? When, you're, when your parent dies and you were close with them, when, when bills pile up and you can't find work, when you've had another sleepless night of depression or your chest feels like it's going to rip from, from all the anxiety that's being stored up or you feel like you're exhausted from this temptation about this, you know, plaguing sin that just will not quit or your feelings of feeling lousy because you know you don't read the Bible enough, you know you don't pray enough, it's in moments like that, friends, that you need to remind yourself that Jesus prepares a place for you. Jesus prepares a place for you. <laughs> Will you trust him in those moments? Will you let that fixed outside of yourself, that outside of yourself, far green country, if you will, reality, move you into a greater love and faith unto him? that then produces a steadfast obedience. Will you, will you love because he has set his love on you while you were still a sinner? Right? 
To those here that don't know Christ and tr- uh, that don't know Christ, that don't trust in Him, let me flip it a little bit. Let me ask you: Where do you run to? Where do you go? Is it the hamster wheel of your own effort? Is it the uh, you know certain motivational videos you watch or podcasts you listen to? Really, just you know, get your endorphins going. Is it? Maybe, maybe is it your perception that, you know, you're smarter than these silly Christians in the room who believe in a God they can't see. So, you know, I may not have it all together, but at least I'm not like these guys. Friend, it's important for you to know something crystal clear here. You being here in this moment, in this seat, listening to this is no accident. Why do I say that? Because the God of this universe, the God of the Bible, is in control of everything. There is not a maverick molecule, there is not a dust particle somewhere that is outside of his control. And nothing happens according to chance. Luck, that's an illusion. So are you willing to actually consider for a moment that God is actually calling out to you? That you recognize that you are lost, that you don't know the way home, and you've been looking for it all your life. That it's actually time for you to own up to the fact that you are a sinner, guilty of wrongdoing, and that that wrongdoing actually makes you liable to a creator that you will meet face to face at some point. And that the only way, the only way to escape that is by placing your faith and trust in the perfection of Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished as your only hope. Jesus is who he says he is, friend. Bank on it. Repent of your sinful self-righteousness and pride and come to him. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. That might be the longest first point I've ever done. Point number two. (laughs) All right. Jesus... (laughs) We also see further, verses 7 through 11, that Jesus is the, yeah, geez, that's a long point. Jesus is the only son of the Father. Jesus is the only son of the Father. After Jesus, let's expand on this a little bit, looking at verses 7 through 11. After Jesus affirms that the disciples, they have, they've see, that they have seen the Father, right? Philip reveals, once again, this misunderstanding, that they're focusing too much on this superficial sense without considering the real spiritual reality, Jesus gives this gentle rebuke. He says, have I been with you so long, and yet you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. We, we wince at that for a second. But the spiritual side of this, guys, is found in the fact of Christ's deity. This could open up a huge can of worms in terms of us being here forever. But I'm just going to keep it real simple. As the one who is both truly God and truly man, Jesus is the fullest revelation, the fullest representation of God's character and attributes. Why do I say fullest? Because he makes the invisible God visible. Jesus made the invisible God visible by taking on human flesh. And a common misconception with this passage, though, can be framed this way. Jesus must be saying that if the Father put on flesh, he looked exactly like Jesus. Well, yes and no. Character-wise, yes. Jesus shares the nature and the character and the attributes of God shared between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. 
the triune God that Christians worship, but each member of the Trinity is, is a distinct person while there is still only one God at the end of the day. Jesus' point is this. To know him is to know the Father. And by implication, the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit grows you in your knowledge of Christ, which subsequently grows you in your knowledge of the Father, who then points you back to the Spirit, who points you to Christ. It's just this, this relationship. And, and Jesus, he uses this Greek term here, harao, which means perception, experience, beholding. And so, be, and this is interesting because Jesus is God, so to know him is to perceive and experience and behold God as a whole, who he is. And so the capstone statement of this unity between the Father and the Son, in essence and persons, it comes from his statement in verse 10. Look at me in verse 10. He says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. And this further is validated by Jesus in John chapter 5, verse 19, where he says, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Son does, that the Son does likewise. So this is why in verse 10, Jesus is willing to say that his works actually point people to the Father. And so, once again, the key point, Jesus is fully God, he's fully man, and as God shares divinity with the Father and the Spirit. And so Jesus' identity, you're like, oh, that's lofty, but what's the point? Jesus' identity as fully God, fully man, validates his mission, and it validates him as being the only person who can take you to the Father. It validates his exclusivity as the only way to God. And so what's our exhortation here, guys? How do we think about this? My... My encouragement to you would be to grow in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Because if Jesus is the gateway to the Father, if he is really the gateway to salvation itself, then grow in your knowledge of who Christ is. Grow in your understanding of God through his word, right? If we wish to worship God rightly, we must know who he is. One pastor put it pointedly when he said, the sad truth is there are many Christians that claim to love a Jesus they don't know very much about. But as Christians, let me really stamp this home. We have unhindered access to God through Christ. Amen? Amen. And, and so what's so amazing about this is the veil of sin, the veil of the law, the veil of our enmity with God, it's been torn. I mean, think of Exodus 33, verses 18 through 22, where Moses, he asks God, please show me your glory. And he, meaning God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. But think about, think about the amazing privilege that we have. Because if we, like we talked about earlier, that Jesus is the fullest revelation of God because he made the invisible God visible. That means there were people who gazed upon the face of God and lived, right? Think about the privilege that we have. Jesus making God visibly known, right? This is why Jesus tells Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's, friends, it's gazing upon Jesus, gazing upon God's promises, gazing upon the gospel that the Lord uses to change us. This is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face, 
unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. It is beholding the glory and the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ that changes us. It gives us a greater revelation of his love. And John says in 1 John 4, uh, 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Right? And, and Dane Ortland, a pastor who actually ministers in Naperville, he wrote a book called Deeper, which is a book that honestly changed my life. And he, he wrote this. He said, you will grow in Christ as much as you direct your gaze to Christ. In other words, if you take your eyes off of Jesus and direct your gaze to your own growth, you will actually hinder the very growth you desire. In other words, you focusing so much on how, how slowly you're growing or not, you're not growing as fast as you want to, you're focusing so much on the root that you're forgetting to, you know, water, or focusing so much on the fruit, you're forgetting to water the root. And the root is beholding God. And that's what actually produces the fruit of change. So in other words, dear Christian, your goal every day should be to direct your gaze to God's character and his promises toward you, most eminently seen in Jesus, who is God the Son and the friend of sinners. And that brings us to our final point, that Jesus is the banner of his people in verses 12 through 14. Let's expand on this a little bit, right? When we're, when we're looking at these last few verses, let's just let's take note of a few things to really understand what we're looking at here. Look at me in verse 12. Here Jesus, he shifts from the works of the Son to the works of believers through the Son. And the meaning is simple. Jesus' greatest work, as you, hear, you see where he says, we will do greater works than these. Jesus' greatest work was salvation, a salvation that he not only accomplished, but you see this a lot in the, in the Gospels, especially in the book of Mark, for example, that Jesus actually preached about the salvation he was about to accomplish. And so as believers, we don't, we don't accomplish salvation. Jesus did that. But like Jesus, we preach and share about the salvation, with the, which is seen through the gospel. So with this in mind, what are the greater works being referenced? There's been a lot of interesting interpretations throughout history about this verse. But I, I would wager to you today that it's not the quality of Christ's work that's being referenced, but the quantity Christ will actually accomplish more through us by his spirit, empowering us everywhere to accomplish the mission. The greater works being referenced is Christ accomplishing more through us by his spirit, empowering us to share the gospel and fulfill the great commission. And the reasoning for this is plain, right? We see it right here in verse 12. It's because he's physically returning to the Father. That's how we know he's talking about the quantity. I mean, think of a reason with me for a little bit. Believers, they do greater in number of works than Jesus did simply because Jesus did ministry on earth for three years. And he had a core of 12 disciples, and then he also had an inner core of three, right? And yeah, he sends out the 72, but think about the expansion of Christianity in the last 2,000 years, right? So he only did ministry for about three years, and then after rising from the grave, went to heaven to continue his work as our high priest, interceding and advocating for us. So Jesus, once again, to go all the way back, he has not abandoned you. He has not abandoned us. He dwells in us by his spirit. But physically, he's in heaven, and so we remain here as his representatives. 
And so the greatest work, though, is to share the gospel with everyone you meet, guys. That's the greatest work. One writer put it this way. The conversion of a sinner is a greater work than any of the miracles of raising the dead, cleansing the lepers, causing the deaf to hear, or giving sight to the blind. Why? Because conversion actually includes all of those miracles. Here we see a sinner, dead in trespasses and sins, quickened and made alive. One born blind, made to see. One who was deaf, and and he was deaf to the threatenings of the law and the voice of the gospel, now made to hear. And one who had the spreading leprosy of sin all over them, cleansed from it by the blood of the Lamb. That's why conversion is the greatest miracle. There is no greater work or miracle than this, guys. So, you know, to put it plainly, if you wonder if God still works miracles today, yeah, that's why there's Christians in this room, right? Look no further than seeing the miracle of God making a dead enemy of his into an alive son or daughter and praise him for it. And this only happens through the gospel. It does. And so as we finish this last section, it's key for us to understand something as believers. That believers, we are Christ's ambassadors. An ambassador can be defined as a diplomatic agent of the highest rank, accredited to a foreign government as a representative of his or own government and appointed for a special and often temporary diplomatic assignment. Very wordy. I got it from the dictionary. In the same way, guys... We are agents, check this out, we are agents of the highest rank of a foreign government for a special and temporary assignment. Are we not? I mean, we are are agents with the highest rank because we've been adopted and actually made joint heirs with Christ. We are of a government not of this world, but of the kingdom of God. And, And we're on a special temporary assignment for, as Jesus said, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, you may be there also. But because we're asking a lot of questions tonight, ask yourself, do you think of yourself in this way, dear Christian? Do you actually think of yourself as an ambassador for Christ? I mean, what does that mean? It's astounding. It means you actually represent him in this mission. And you actually join him in this mission. And what is that? It's, it's no less than the Great Commission of Matthew 28, Right? Making disciples through sharing the gospel and then teaching those disciples to observe all of Christ's commandments for them and his will as their Lord. But really just take a second and sit in this, guys. Realize the gravity of the situation. We are actually sharing in the divine work of the king of the universe. Think about that. I mean, how astounding, right? God could have... I mean, he's all-powerful. He could have done it in any other way to save his scattered people throughout the world, but he chose to use us. Imperfect, weak, broken, wavering us. That was his chosen instrument. That was his chosen method. The Apostle Paul captures this sense in 2 Corinthians 5. Listen closely to this. It's just amazing. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. And see if you catch these themes. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And what is that? 
that is in Christ was reconciled in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation therefore we are ambassadors for Christ God making his appeal through us we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God and then he goes down in chapter 6 verse 1 and this just blows me away working together with him then we appeal you appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain I mean is that not amazing it's not as though it's not as though God was picking some you know ministry all-star team and then you know you happen to be the last pick with him begrudgingly saying oh, all right I guess you could join too you know no it wasn't that it, you were actually particularly, specifically part of his plan to reconcile the world. That you are the one that actually joins the mission equally with others. Make no mistake, the king doesn't need you, but he does want you. I mean, I, I can't think of anything more humbling in the world, friends. So as we close, brothers and sisters, consider your calling from God. A calling to share in the work of spreading the light of the gospel in the darkness of this world. And Jesus reflects this once again in his high priestly prayer in chapter 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Friends, Jesus, the light who saved you and showed you the way, is the same light that shines through you to show others the way. So always remember, friends, that as Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot, cannot be hidden, no, nor, nor people who light a lamp put it under a basket, but they actually they put it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Is that not amazing?